Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be considered as a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Welcome to the law firm of Crow and Dunleavy's Briefly Legal Podcast, and this is the second edition of our spinoff uh, focused on energy and environmental law. I'm your host, Tim Sawecki, and I'm here with my colleague, Alyssa Sloan, to discuss various energy and environmental law issues and, and hopefully inform our listeners of some of the very fascinating things that we wrestle with every day here at our law firm in, in Oklahoma City. Alyssa, do you mind saying hi to our podcast listeners today? Of of course, this is Alyssa Sloan here. Thanks for having me, Tim. I'm very excited to be back on the podcast. And it's wonderful to have her. She's a burgeoning and environmental and energy attorney, a young attorney here. And, and we're so pleased to have her again on the show. And she is my co-host here and, and my steadfast and trusted advisor in that sense. So without further <laughs> ado, we're going to get started for today. And to start, we're going to do something fairly interesting because I'm going to invite you, Alyssa, and myself to take a deep breath in and then give a nice (laughs) exhale. I think we we all deserve that. So let's go ahead and, and do that. Now, no podcast listeners, we did not just turn into a a health and wellness podcast. Today, (laughs) we are here to talk about another chemical compound, a charismatic molecule that we know as carbon dioxide. Roars, cheers, controversy (laughs) from the sidelines. Um, Yes, carbon dioxide uh, is is a chemical compound with the formula CO2. The molecules each have one carbon atom, a covalently bonded with two oxygen atoms, so, so a fairly strong molecule. And, and this substance, this molecule, this chemical compound that is in our air, it is in our exhales, it is fundamental to photosynthesis where plants essentially process photons and, and carbohydrates and, and produce um, oxygen and also through that process um, utilize carbon dioxide. And then us humans get to breathe in that oxygen. And then when we breathe out, we create carbon dioxide. And then um, of late in the Industrial Revolution, we've seen some, some escalating levels of, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And, and in the atmosphere, it has this characteristic where it, it captures infrared red light, condenses heat, and at moderated levels creates the lovely uh, homeostatic Mother Earth that we inhabit. When certain levels you know, reach high levels in the atmosphere, what we see is increases in, in global climate change. So we're going to talk about carbon dioxide today, and we're going to talk about a little bit about a law, the Inflation Reduction Act in that regard. And then the super nerdy topic we're going to talk about is the Safe Drinking Water Act and what we're doing doing with CO2 with respect to class two underground injection control wells and class six underground injection control wells under the Safe Drinking Water Act. So let's start with 
carbon dioxide. And you're going to hear a little bit of, of a philosophy of environmental law from yours truly on this front. Carbon dioxide, as we've just discussed, is, is kind of a decay byproduct. It, it is the result of certain chemical um, reactions in our atmosphere and in the way that we breathe. Um, and so it is, is no stranger to being a waste product. And more and more, it is becoming somewhat of a problematic in the fugitive sense that when it is an emission in the atmosphere, it is causing some global climate change that is having weather effects and other you know, risks to real property assets and assets throughout our world. So from a, a capital perspective, um, investors are concerned with carbon dioxide. And we're seeing that in the nascent movement of uh, the SEC, uh, nascent reporting rules that will be forthcoming with respect to how your operations may um, have certain risks related to carbon dioxide emissions. Um, I know that rule is controversial, but we're seeing capital want to understand the risks associated with carbon dioxide these days. We're also seeing the Inflation Reduction or Inflation Reduction Act is another interesting component to what we're seeing with respect to carbon dioxide, because this represents a model from our government in which the government is recognizing that carbon dioxide is the byproduct of manufacturing processes and is essential to a healthy GDP, but at the same time is posing environmental risks. So has created a structure to um, incentivize the capture of it and, and the monetization and the commoditization of carbon dioxide in some senses. So I, I've glossed over the Inflation Reduction Act. So now I need the brain trust to come in a little bit. <laughs> Alyssa, can you tell uh, you know me and us a little bit more about the Inflation Reduction Act? Of course. So the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law by President Biden on August 16th, 2022. And it includes tax incentives and grants for solar, wind, hydrogen, nuclear, oil and gas, and carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration projects. Um, so this um, new law invested over $350 million for these grants and tools to really help manufacturers measure, report, and substantially lower the levels of embodied carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions. Very interesting. And, and what's fascinating with the Inflation Reduction Act, if I understand, is, is that it has amended a, a provision within our, our IRS, our tax code, um, related to energy tax credits for the storage, the capture and storage, or in some cases, use of carbon dioxide. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Of course. Um, so the IRA amended Section 45Q of the tax code, and this provides a new tax credit um, for every ton of carbon dioxide that is captured and permanently stored in geological formations. Um, so this is done through the construction of carbon capture and utilization facilities. Very interesting. So uh, just to, uh, for our, our listeners, 45Q it has been around for uh, some time, but this is the first time that within the Inflation Reduction Act, we're seeing uh, a value on the storage of carbon dioxide that, that makes it somewhat attractive from an investment perspective, you know, business models. And, is, and also in the Inflation Reduction Act, we're seeing additional grant monies for innovation related to what is broadly given the moniker uh, 
energy transition, hydrogen, wind. Um, so uh, what's very interesting is, yeah, a price is being put on carbon dioxide. And that's we want to stay focused on carbon dioxide here. So that that 45Q credit now has some muscle on it and, and that may attract some investment. It does. Um, so. Carbon caption utilization and sequestration, some refer to it as carbon capture utilization and storage, CCUS, some refer other projects, carbon capture and storage, you're not necessarily utilizing it. Um, some forms are, are referred to as enhanced oil recovery because you are utilizing stored carbon to increase production of oil and gas in the subsurface. So let's talk about one of our favorite uh, areas of the law with respect to carbon dioxide and projects that may be viable under the Inflation Reduction Act for the storage of carbon dioxide. So let's talk a little bit about the Safe Drinking Water Act. So tell me a little bit what you know about these forms of wells that are used to dispose of certain substances under the Safe Drinking Water Act, Alyssa. Yes. So the Safe Drinking Water Act um, is really focused on all waters that are either actually or potentially designed um, for drinking use. And this can be both above ground and underground. And the Safe Drinking Water Act has what is called an underground injection control program. And this really can regulate the injection wells to ensure that fluids are not being discharged into an underground source of drinking water. Yeah. So we've got the Safe Drinking Water Act as, as this federal environmental statute reads on its face. It's supposed to protect the public from potential issues with with potentially or actually potable drinkable water, you know, a very valuable resource. Um, at the same time, it's developed these um, different classification systems for injecting uh, materials, liquids um, into the subsurface. And so we're not going to talk about on all of these underground injection control wells today. It's a fairly broad program. But with respect to carbon dioxide, there's two types of wells at the moment that may allow folks that uh, want to develop plans to store carbon dioxide emissions from point sources, from manufacturing industrial facilities, or folks that want to store carbon dioxide um, as a waste uh, in oil field production activities. So let's start with what are these two types of classifications of underground injection control wells, Alyssa? Yes. So the two primary um, classes of wells that we'll discuss today are class two wells and class six wells. So class two wells are um, primarily used for brine and wastewater disposal, liquid hydrocarbon storage, and enhanced oil recovery. And currently we have around 180,000 active class two wells nationwide. Wow. So class two wells are, are really fascinating for, for someone like, like me that practices oil and gas law, practices environmental law, because there's a jurisdictional issue um, with class two wells. Class two wells, um, while EPA and under the Safe Drinking Water Act normally has jurisdiction, many states exercise what is called primacy, which is jurisdiction over class two wells. The other very interesting thing for me is class two wells, as you've said, there's a number of them in this country are, are fundamental to oil and gas operations. They provide a ready avenue for disposal of oil field waste. They tend to be in shallower formations, not as deep a formation 
conditions as class six wells, which we'll talk about in the moment at the moment. And so from an operational perspective, from an integrating into existing operations perspective, from a mitigating climate effects perspective, and from an accruing uh, tax credits under the Inflation Reduction Act perspective, these class two wells pose a real interesting or, or attractive form of, of managing carbon out in, in oil and gas production activities. So class two wells, they have primacy with the state. In most cases, I believe eight states um, have, have allowed uh, EPA to retain primacy over class two wells, but they offer a form of solution of, of storage or in some cases, um, enhancing oil recovery to further additional production of hydrocarbons from a field. And what I'm getting at here is in a lot of cases from a regulatory perspective, from a permitting perspective, and from a cost perspective, because they're shallower, the regulatory hurdles uh, tend to be less, they can be less costly. Um, so let's talk, let's connect these class two wells to the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes. I am, a, uh, I am an oil field producer or I own a gathering system that gathers from all these wells out in an oil field. And through the course of, of the production of these hydrocarbons, these oil and gas operations, I've got a lot of carbon dioxide emissions to manage. Alyssa, I'm scratching my head. What as an operator here could maybe I do with respect to class two wells? Yes. Um, so as an operator, um, you could potentially use your existing infrastructure to potentially apply for a um, class two well permit. And normally this permit process is fairly quick with the EPA. Um, right now we've seen that usually within a couple of months you can receive that permit approval. And so, um, so long as you can prove that this specific well would be able to provide long-term sequestration of the carbon dioxide, it would most likely be approved, and then you would qualify for that tax credit. Okay. Thank you, Alyssa. You actually broached a good subject. Again, depending on if you're applying for this class two permit through the EPA or through your state agency, you're going to have to have what is referred to as a monitoring reporting verification um, submission. You're going to have to ensure that what this the carbon dioxide that you're using um, can be monitored, is going where you intended to go, is staying where you intended to go. Um, and so these, these MRVs are, are critical to the process. Um, and from a risk perspective, me being an attorney, you know, there are these important considerations when you think of injecting um, CO2 into a formation underground. And what I mean to say with that is that um, when uh, historically a formation has been a source for injection of other oil field wastes and you add additional pressure to that system, assuming the formation can handle that pressure, it's a great container for, for said wastes. But if it cannot adequately contain that additional pressure and the wastes that are already pre-existing within that formation, that may pose integrity issues, which could create risks. And so with all these carbon dioxide programs, containment, monitoring are, are, are very important subjects. And I know that a lot of work is still being done and innovation being done with respect to, to monitoring and verifying the amounts of carbon dioxide that can and are indeed being stored. Um, and, and more on that, I could, we could have 10 podcasts on, on monitoring, reporting, and verification, and we may in the future, but, but we'll you know, leave a heavy footnote there for that. 
So we've got class two wells. Alyssa, tell me a little bit more about class six wells, because we've alluded they're a little bit more of a hurdle to permit. Um, So tell me a little bit more about class six wells. Definitely. Um, So class six wells have much higher standards when they're being reviewed um, in the permit process. And currently, um, only two states have primacy. So all other states will need to go through the EPA to receive this permit approval. Um, And also notably, the class six wells um, normally do not qualify for what they call the aquifer exemption. So some exemptions that you may normally be able to obtain if you're applying for a class two permit are not going to be available for class six well permits. Very interesting. So again, class six wells, much deeper uh, from a geological perspective, can be very expensive. Again, more of a concern with proximity to potential potable aquifers. You're going to be interfacing with EPA more unless you're st- you're one of the states that has primacy here. Um, so it could be a long permitting process. Um, and these class six wells, by their very nature, should be uh, because they're fairly capital intensive and have a long regulatory uh, kind of road in, in some instances, should have large storage requirements. These are, you know, big storage facilities, if you will, for carbon dioxide Um, So there are many of these scattered throughout the nation in the permitting pipeline because I I think attributable to the Inflation Reduction Act. It is, you know, monetizing, commoditizing carbon dioxide in a sense. And these class six wells able to exploit that in some senses uh, and address, you know, potentially be a solution to our carbon dioxide problems um, are aiming for that with these class six wells. Do we have any class six wells pending here in Oklahoma, Alyssa? We do. We actually have um, two wells that are pending. So this would be with an application pending directly with the EPA. So Oklahoma does not currently have primacy and the authority to consider these permit applications. We can note that Wyoming and North North Dakota do have primacy. Um, Wyoming has five active well applications and North Dakota has 10 active well applications. So in each of those respective states, their state level authorities have received um, the delegation from the EPA to directly implement the UIC permitting program. Yeah, and and this this is what we see with respect to to a lot of federal laws is that you know the states would like to exercise primacy under the federal law, and they can do that if they can show that they have programs in place that'll meet or beat the criteria of that federal law, and there's a long application process in order to to have primacy, but. From a, a, a broader perspective, if the states are, have the ability to control some of the permitting around this, um, from a state's rights perspective, it, it may allow more nimbleness in these these projects to happen in a more expedient um, manner than than you know working with federal agencies on it. And I see that you know Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas. West Virginia, oil and gas states are in the process of, of pursuing primacy um, and administering classic wells under the UIC program. And it is true, there's no word from uh, Oklahoma yet whether it's going to, you know, lean into this and try to take primacy. But but I know that, you know, a lot of industry folks and, and folks that want this Inflation Reduction Act to, to get the legs that, it, you know, to succeed um, would like the states to get fairly nimble and, and start to expedite some of these classics wells. So, 
All right. Well, I think another distinction to point out is is class two wells. Correct me if I'm wrong, Alyssa. Class two wells um, with respect to carbon dioxide is considered a waste from oil field activities. Is that correct? Correct. And for class six wells in the con- in the in the construct of carbon capture and storage or utilization and storage, those class six wells are taking carbon dioxide from point sources, from industrial facilities, um, electric utility power plants, uh, manufacturing facilities. So that's a distinction here with merit. Am I am I correct, Alyssa? Definitely. And it looks like the EPA is continuing to focus on environmental justice. So with the pending. Um, application in Louisiana, there is a section that anyone can review online in the Federal Register where the EPA is focusing again on whether or not this Class 6 well could potentially have a negative impact on already overburdened communities. Very interesting. And yeah, so you you mentioned this concept of overburdened communities and you mentioned this concept of of environmental justice to to concerns from the EPA right now. And so overburdened communities uh, summon to my mind this idea of of maybe not in my backyard. A lot of our manufacturing and production, the products we love as consumers, come from very industrial areas, whether in the United States or offshore. And in the United States, some of these are overburdened communities. They have a lot of industrial activities happening in them. And those activities, you know, tend to be fairly well-regulated, but um, we are, and EPA is becoming more concerned under environmental justice initiatives to make sure that stakeholders in those communities have a voice in the permitting stages. And really, Alyssa, we talked a little bit about this today, you know, with respect to environmental justice becoming a component of permitting and rulemaking um, with our administrative state, in some senses, it's a new term, but a lot of rulemaking under the Administrative Procedure Act has always aimed to have all stakeholders participate in rules, regulations, and 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 act as stakeholders in the permitting process. So I know you have some thoughts on this, but as a young admin law student, you know I think that this concept of environmental justice being an ex- something an extension of how democratic our administrative process can be when all stakeholders participate is a really inspiring thought for <laughs> for me at least. Oh, definitely. I think it's it's imperative to let overburdened communities who are, you know, seeing a much higher aggregate level of environmental hazards have an opportunity to, you know, participate in public comment and um, let their concerns be known to industry makers and everyone. Yeah. Yeah. This idea of notice and comment, it's baked into, you know, the way that our administrative agencies um, uh, promulgate rules and regulations under the laws that Congress pass. Um, and and this idea of, of being able to be noticed and commented and participate in these processes. Um, here, here, let's let's <laughs> keep that going. So so democracy can can be, uh, you know, in a healthy form with respect to our administrative state. Yes. So I think that should wrap it up. I know I've talked more than my share and Alyssa has carried more than the weight uh, in terms of, of the knowledge here. So I thank her for being here. Thanks, Alyssa, for, for sharing the information today. Thanks for having me. 
And uh, listeners, I hope this has been informative. You know, we've talked a little bit about another charismatic molecule, carbon dioxide. We, again, can't help ourselves want to talk about it in the, as a concept in the, in the waste cycle and what, you know, what it is, uh, the risks it may pose as a waste, as a fugitive emission in the atmosphere. And then we've talked about the Inflation Reduction Act as, as a carrot, an incentive to maybe help businesses start to address carbon dioxide emissions with respect to their business models. And then we've talked about what that looks like uh, with respect to class two and class six wells under the Safe Drinking Water Act. Class six wells are being permitted and are intended to be used for, uh, in this case, uh, storage of large volumes of carbon dioxide from point sources, industrial facilities, manufacturing facilities. And class two wells offer a, a storage solution for oil field waste related carbon dioxide. And in some cases, maybe a ready uh, pressure agent for enhanced oil recovery. So um, we're seeing more and more of those projects here in Oklahoma and the United States, very innovative, exciting projects. And uh, we uh, enjoy participating in them. And we obviously love sharing all about them with our podcast listeners. So thanks again for joining me, Tim Sawecki and Alyssa Sloan, Briefly Legal, a spinoff of energy and environmental law. Until next time, take some deep breaths and uh, let's all think about carbon dioxide. All right. Thank you. 